right now, my favorite asset class right now is self-storage. And the way I see it, I mean, keep in mind, my background was multifamily. And, and we, we bought distressed apartments after the crash. And I, and I sold all those. I, I sold all the apartments and everything because of the predictability, the modeling. And for me, self-storage is apartments without toilets. It's without yeah. kitchens, without toilets, and pretty much without tenants. I don't get calls in the middle of the night. You know, I don't have to worry about someone, you know, not, you know, behaving properly and destroying a toilet or these sorts of things because they might have had too much fun earlier in the night. And the, the, it's a lot more predictable and we can model it out and it's based 100% on demographics. So there's, there's a predictability within the model that we just did not have when we were doing condominiums and, and multifamily. All right, guys, welcome again to another amazing episode. Today we have Scott Crone. Uh, Scott is the founder of Coda Management Group. Uh, now they invest in an excess of 55 million. He had, they touch pretty much every asset class from what I see. And we're going to dive right into it and ask uh, Scott, you know, I'm going to start off with one question that I noticed right off your bio. So you have a bachelor's in arts in history. And then that led you to a master's in architecture. And now you're in, in, you have a firm, you have all that stuff. What, how did, how did you go? If you can get into your background, but how did, how did you go from a, a history degree to architecture to now, you know, being a head of a capital firm? Well, crazy, isn't it? But first of all, thank you very much, Oscar and German for having me. We, we really appreciate the opportunity of talking with you and your guests. So, Thank you very much. But um, <clears throat> life's a crazy story, isn't it? It's a uh, it's uh, ups and downs, and I'm going around uh, roller coaster. But I, I was I grew up enjoying playing with Legos. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of architects say that. And I I took architectural classes in high school. I was fortunate enough to go to a large high school. We had about four thousand students, and so I took two years of uh, different architectural first technical drawing and then architectural drawing. And I considered going into architecture out of, out of college, but I was also recruited for soccer. And so I, if I went to a tech school, I didn't feel I could play college soccer. And so um, I chose uh, a liberal arts school, Kenyon College in Ohio. And I ended up in history because I enjoyed it the most. And I figured I could get the best grades with drawing the least, you know, typical college mentality. And um when my senior year, my parents came for parents weekend and we had, a, we had a family business that was in die casting. And, you know, my dad said, what are you, what are you going to plan on doing next year when you graduate? I said, well, fair to go work for the family business. You know, I'm, you know, my sister is a teacher. She didn't want to go into die casting and I was next oldest. And, and then only one in the neighborhood there when there was my younger brother, but everybody else lived outside the city. And um, he promptly told me that I would not be doing that. And I was like, did I do something wrong? Am I grounded? You know? <laughs> and yeah. he said, no, we're selling the family business. And, you know, that, that's a big shock. Um, you know, it's uh, when your whole life has been around a family business to find out that it's being sold. That's a, it's a big transition and a big change. And. You know, my father, you know, quickly pivot. I mean, obviously he had had time to process this. I had about 30 seconds to process it. And he said, what do you think about architecture? 
you know, you, you loved it in high school and, um, you know, why don't you consider it? And I said, I'm getting a master's in, I mean, I'm getting a bachelor's in, in history. Like, how can I possibly go into architecture at this point in time? And um, he said they have new programs that are master's degrees. So clearly he had been thinking about this a lot longer than I had. Yeah, he helped you out there. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I began looking into it. And uh, sure enough, they just created these programs. So typically a master's in architecture was four years of undergraduate plus one year of graduate work. This program with four years of undergraduate, you could do three and a half years and get a master's in architecture. So it was, it was basically condensing a, a five-year program into three and a half because I'd done all the other prerequisites. And so I was able to get into that. And that's how I started getting into the real estate. That is awesome. That is really cool. All right. So then let, talk to us a little bit. You, your company, you started as a manager in real estate for another firm. And then you started your own company, um, which is Coda Management Group. What, what mindset did it take? And obviously, no one knows at all starting from, you know, how to start a business and, and get everything going. But what kind of mindset did it take and what other avenues did you take to figure out what you needed to get done to start up your firm? Well, I, again, while at um, school to get my master's in architecture, I was fortunate enough that my, my professor, who I was a TA for, owned a real estate development company that also did architecture and construction management. And so since I was the only one um, in his class that could read and write, he had me work on the development side and everybody else was drawing, but um, my master's thesis was a 400 unit development. So he, he would take a project that he wanted to have done in his office and he'd have every one of his students work on it. And so, you know, basically as his TA, he would have me come to his office and work from seven until noon in his office and then from like one to six, I'd be in class with him working on his stuff. I'd go home, eat dinner. And then from seven until midnight, I was doing homework for him. So, so basically from seven in the morning until midnight, I was basically working on his projects. And extra credit? No extra credit. <laughs> hey, God, you know, the only extra credit I got is he said, you know, you have to work for me for free. And I said, hold on, my TA ship's only 20 hours. After 20 hours, you have, you do have to pay me. That was my first negotiation in real estate. <laughs> That's a and, great deal um, for him. I mean, yeah. he got a lot too in knowledge, but I mean, <laughs> he got free labor. Exactly. So, I mean, it was, it was an incredible learning. I mean, it was, it was three years of school and then um, three years afterwards, so I worked for him for six and a half years. And, you know, I learned both the development side, the architectural side, and then as well as the construction side. And so we were, we were, I was running multiple jobs during that period of time and they were all multifamily. There was only, um, I worked on two single family projects. They were both his homes, his old first home and then his second home. But I ran um, both condo conversions from apartments to condos, as well as new construction uh, multifamily. And, you know, it was an incredible experience. So Growing up, being in an entrepreneurial family, working for uh, someone who was an entrepreneur, it, 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 you know, I was marinated in that, that lifestyle, that mentality, if you will. So I, I always had the premonition that I was never going to work for him forever, that I was going to be working for myself at some point in time. So I used the entire six years there to absorb as much as possible. You know, as soon as I went full time, he mandated that we had to work 80 hour days for, for eight weeks. 
And I mean, it, it was, it was rough. It was brutal. I was making like a, a dollar 25 an hour. And, um, you know, my classmates who were still part-time were like tripled overtime, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there making a dollar 25 and I'm like, Oh man, but I always kept a long-term vision, a, t- a long-term goal that this is, this is temporal. This is, this is short-term, but ultimately what is my goal? And my goal was to do it myself. So at the very old ripe age of 28, I started my own firm and, you know, I probably didn't know half of what I needed to know and probably twice as arrogant as I should have been. And um, that's how I started my own company at 28. And, um, you know, just had the, had the feeling to know that in the background, the knowledge to feel I could do this. I love it. I, yeah, I love it because it's, it's so easy to, uh, to get sidetracked, you know, when you compare yourself to other people and you think that they're doing better than you. And, uh, and if you lose sight of that vision, like you just mentioned, um, yeah, you get, you get lost in it and then you, you just get derailed. Your dream gets derailed just because you're comparing to, to, to other people that, like you said, temporarily they're doing, they might be doing better than you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're getting paid, uh, in knowledge in, in, in the network in, in, in so many other ways that might not be monetary value, but, uh, but eventually it's just kind of, it's a, you're just going to skyrocket and, and you just did it. That's awesome. Well, thank you. So do you think it was, it was arrogance or do you think it was confidence, like extreme confidence? <laughs> well, I, I think it's both, right? I mean, it's, what, what is arrogance? It's, it's misplaced confidence, right? Or overstated confidence. And I think it, it, to, to start anything, you have to be a little bit arrogant because inherently what you're saying is, I think I can do it better than you, yeah. right? And it, it, how do you know that if you've never done it? So therefore it's got to be arrogance. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think over the time, over the frame, I recognized the importance and the values of the different things that he taught me as well as other mentors. You know, I, I have a phenomenal mentor, um, whose name is Dr. Nito Cobain. He's, he's the president of high point university and he owns great harvest bread and lazy boy. He's on the board of BBT bank and a bunch of other things. And, and he moved here when, from Lebanon when he was 16 years old with a couple of hundred dollars in his wallet. And, you know, he's, he's risen through the ranks and, you know, is very accomplished in doing these different things. Inherently, you, when you, when he, when he came to the United States, he didn't even know the language, but he had to teach himself and he had to, you know, was learning one word at a, uh, a day and he was just constantly trying to expand and grow. And, you know, when I hear those stories and when I was talking with him and talk with him, you know, I, I do compare myself to him in German and, and say, <clears throat> you know, what would he do? How would he handle this situation? But there is that comparison. And I think as I got older, that arrogance faded away and the knowledge and wisdom built the confidence to say, OK, you know, this this is a comp. These are attainable goals. But what are reasonable, rational goals that we can accomplish and how do we go about doing that? And how do other people do it rather than thinking that? I just know it. I know how to do it. No one needs to tell me what to do. I mean, that's, that's the misplaced confidence. That's when it gets into arrogance. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, Definitely. It's great. So you, you know, you, I, I read about your company and I mean, they pretty much every asset class you have in there, you have small residential, you have uh, commercial, all kinds of commercial multifamily, I think I saw hotels, uh, anything that's stressed pretty much. So, you know, what, what is your favorite asset class and, and why? 
Well, currently, I, I will say this. I mean, there, there's favorites for different reasons. I mean, from a design perspective, you know, it's it's fun to be creative and, and design a home for someone that um, has a unique situation. I mean, there's there's a higher level of creativity there. But on the commercial side, the creativity comes in the capital stack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how we structure the deal, putting the, you know, the art of the deal, if you will, of how we structure, how we put it together. You know, it, it, it doesn't take me very long to, to design a self-storage facility. It's like lockers here, office here, toilet there. I mean, done. You know, pass it on to, you know, the draftsman, right? Um, but how we structure the deal. So right now, my favorite asset class right now is self-storage. And the way I see it, I mean, keep in mind, my background was multifamily. And, and we, we bought distressed apartments after the crash. And I, and I sold all those. I, I sold all the apartments and everything because of the predictability, the modeling. And for me, self-storage is apartments without toilets. It's without yeah. kitchens, without toilets, and pretty much without tenants. I don't get calls in the middle of the night. You know, I don't have to worry about someone, you know, not, you know, behaving properly and destroying a toilet or these sorts of things because they might have had too much fun earlier in the night. And the, the, it's a lot more predictable and we can model it out and it's based 100% on demographics. So there's, there's a predictability within the model that we just did not have when we were doing condominiums and, and multifamily, not to the not to the extent that we have with self storage. So you mentioned the design. So are you are you doing development uh, as well and, and designing it from scratch? You are an architect. So are you are you designing these self storage right now, or are you picking up them up already distressed and then you know doing a value add? First and foremost, we are developers. So we we are buying underutilized commercial buildings throughout the Midwest and converting them into self storage. So we will we, I will we will identify a property, figure out if it economically is viable, review the building, put together the construction budget, come up with the general layout, the configuration of the spaces where the different you know I mean obviously we're dealing with existing elevators, locations, stairs but how we're gonna lay out the lockers, where the sales office is, how we're gonna enter the building from driving into the building. These are fully climate controlled, fully conditioned spaces that people are literally driving into our buildings to unload their goods and distribute them throughout the building. And then we will hire a local architect because we're, we're working throughout the Midwest. So we will hire a regional architect, a local architect to facilitate our design and then we will build it and then we hire third-party management to facilitate or manage the property for us. That's amazing. Very, very complex and a lot of, a lot of work goes into that. That's pretty cool. So what are three mind-blowing facts about your mobile home parts? I, I don't own them. That's the first mind-blowing fact. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, he, said, he said he sold everything. Oh, yeah. yeah so so me- I, 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 that was one asset class I have not gotten into is mobile home parts. Oh. Um, so it was what I sold was apartment buildings. Gotcha. But, um, you know, for me, I, I will say this, the, the amazing asset class within mobile home parks is the fact that it's a land lease and you're, you're creating a rental unit on a $12,000, $20,000 box. And so you're getting the residual income off of, off of um, a lease situation. So we, we do try to take the, that concept of simplifying the business model as much as we can within self-storage. Because if you think about it, the only difference is I'm, I'm buying a box, I'm building a box, 
but I'm creating a short-term lease residual income off of it. So it, it's a very much the same sort of concept. It's just a different product type. So while, you know, when I was buying apartments, you know, I might buy them for like $45,000 a door and putting $25,000, $30,000 in to fix them up. I'm buying these, these facilities for $11 a square foot. And then we're, we're building them, but you know, I might be in for nine, $10,000 a rental unit versus, you know, 55, $60,000 on an apartment building versus, you know, when we were doing um, 400 units, that was a hundred million dollars. So right now we, the building that we, we just opened up, it's over 800 units in Wisconsin. We just opened up the doors for it in Milwaukee. And our cost basis is a fraction. It's a 10th of what we were doing in the multifamily space. Can you can you explain to us the uh, the demographic? Because most of our audience and, and we are more familiar with the multifamily, right? So we 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 see the demographics when when we look into multifamily or just residential real estate. But when it comes to uh, self storage, what are the demographics? What do you look at uh, to to know that it is that you're getting into a good deal into a good area? Well, there, there's a couple of different things within the demographics. The first one is, is there too much product or not enough product in the marketplace? So we are specifically looking at a, a three or five mile radius around that specific property. And if it's anywhere else, it, the data is totally irrelevant. We're, we're specifically looking at a very, you know, a pinpoint location and what is immediately around it. So where supply equals demands or crosses on the economic graph or chart is lockers per capita, square foot of lockers per capita. And where supply equals demand is around seven square feet of lockers per capita. And in the South, the East, it's, it, it's itching up to nine um, in like the West Coast, um, the East Coast and Florida and the South. But where we're looking for throughout the Midwest, we're looking to buy a property that is significantly below seven square feet per capita. So that, that's our first you know, thing that we look for is to determine how much supply is in there. If we, if we go beyond that, then our rental rates drop, our absorption rate increases, and it just takes longer to make the project viable. So, you know, the one in Chicago we bought, the property, it was under two. Same for Milwaukee. Um, Toledo was around three. Dayton was around three and a half. And then now we're, we're looking at, a, we're under contract to buy a property in Louisville, Kentucky, and it's four. And so we know that with when we bring product into the marketplace, there's still significant demand for us to satisfy. The second is we look at, you know, what is the makeup of that demographic? So what percentage is renter? What percentage is homeowner? What's the medium income? Um, is the population growing, decreasing? And what that tells us is how big and what configuration of lockers that we should do within the building. So one of the things that we did when we were doing multifamily is that we would get a property or a project approved for X number of units. We, we could not vary that one bit. You know, we might be able to tweak a little bit, make one a little bit bigger, one a little bit smaller, but based upon the, the, the structure of the building, there was, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of flexibility that we could do. Within lockers, I can change the configuration. So I have the ability to alter and modify our product type in order to respond to the demand. So for instance, the more affluent the community is, they're willing to pay a higher price per square foot for a larger locker. The less affluent the community is, they're paying a higher price per square foot for a smaller one, which is contradictory, right? You would think that if less affluent, they can't afford as much. 
but there's a premium for square footage. So they're willing to pay a higher price for that. So rather than having to move, they'd rather pay a couple dollars more per square foot for a smaller locker. And they can't afford a big locker. That's why we can get a higher price on smaller ones. So we had one, we have one facility where it's very affluent community and we had a bunch of 10 by 10s. We couldn't rent them. All the 10 by 20s were sold out. So what we did is we took out the middle wall of the 10 by 10s and made them into 10 by 20s and they leased up immediately. Wow. Nice. Same square footage, you know, yeah. but it's a mental hurdle that people are like, I need this big. Fine, here you go. We don't care. So we actually reduced the number of lockers, but increased our revenue. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And then that's less of, less of a headache for you too. Yeah. So conversely, when we began, you know, really developing and building these lockers up in Wisconsin and Toledo, we recognized that we needed to alter the configuration. So we took 10 by 10s and made them into five by fives or 10 by fives. And so that way we could get the you know smaller lockers and stuff like that. And so, you know, there's ways in which we can, you know, alter the configuration and we're not locked in by how many units we're just locked in by the overall perimeter of the building. I know some real good nuggets right there. You know, yeah. anyone that's looking into mobile homes, I mean, into self-storage, I mean, it's, it's really good. Wow. Yeah. So then, you know, let's dive more into, you know, because you mentioned that was one of your projects. So do you have any other projects that you give an example of? Uh, I'm more curious about how you would get into a negotiation for a, a self-storage. And, you know, are you are you... Are these typically through broker or are you getting them off market? Are they pocket listings? How, how do you go by finding them? Well, the, there's, there's two different strategies. One, if you're, if you're buying an existing facility, then you're looking at physical occupancy versus economic occupancy. So you might have like 90% occupancy and people actually using your facilities, but only 70% are actually paying. That's the difference between physical and economic. And so when you're buying an existing facility, it's really, you're looking at the NOIs, you're looking for inefficiencies within it, and then it's just applying a cap rate to get to the value. And so, um, you know, there are wholesale opportunities out there. There are, you know, direct mailing. There is also working with brokers. There, I mean, I probably get 10 listings a day of self-storage facilities. That doesn't mean they're all good deals for us um, because a lot of them are retail pricing. So what we're doing is we're buying underperforming commercial buildings and then converting them into self-storage. So us for us to wholesale or market one of our buildings, excuse me, doesn't really apply because of the fact that these buildings aren't already self-storage. Um, Toledo, the building was not on the market. Our broker approached the owner and said, hey, look, I have someone who's looking for a building. This meets the criteria. Would you be interested in selling? And the guy, well, you know, maybe depending on the price. And, um, you know, we came to terms and then we were able to buy it. The, the one in Dayton that we bought. So the one in Toledo, we bought for $11 a square foot. Now I can't build that building for $11 a square foot. You know, I, I can't even build it for $20 a square foot. So for us to buy it significantly below replacement cost, even with the conversions that we do, it gives me a huge competitive advantage compared to our competition. So when we're looking to come in, let's say U-Haul buys a building at $15 a square foot and then they have their build out and I can buy it at 11. That means I have a $4 per square foot pricing advantage in terms of where I need to break even. 
So I'm always trying to come in below what the competition is or the basis. So that's my, that's the basis of how I need to evaluate the project. So Dayton, we bought that one um, for $11 a square foot. It was empty. The developer was trying to convert it into apartments and he couldn't get the parking. There was no availability for parking. And so he was trying to figure out what to do with the building. And we came in and, and bought it. It had been empty for about 40 years. The neighborhood around it is developing very fast. And obviously self-storage is a great um, secondary product for apartments and condominiums because space is a premium in the city. So that's that's the reason why we bought the one in, um, in Dayton. That's great. With the market being the way it is due to COVID, which when I say the way it is, no one knows what it is because <laughs> it's all over, right? Um, are you seeing more opportunity for, you know, these commercial buildings that may be taking more of a hit and converting them? So are you finding more or, or is it the opposite for you? Um, well, we, we began our due diligence on this building in November of last year, and we actually went to contract as COVID was occurring. Um, we're, we're not scared of recessions in self-storage. In fact, I went back and studied um, how self-storage performs over the last four recessions. So you might not be able to see it, but I, I do have a little bit of gray. So that means I've been around <laughs> for a few of these things, but you can definitely tell if I bend over. So um, the, the point being is that we went back and looked at, you know, the different recessions, but 91, 01, you know, 11, 08, 09, all those different recessions. And what we saw was that in, in every recession, self-storage dropped 1% and then rebounded two or three. So the net was an, always an increase within a year, dropped a little bit and bumped. And so I deemed it recession resistant because there's no, there's no, thing, no such thing as recession proof. Yeah. But what there is, is resistant. It resists recession better than any other product that I've ever seen. So a lot of operators in self-storage, when they see a recession, they begin selling because that's historically when the greatest cap compression has ever occurred in self-storage is in a recessionary market. In fact, when extra space um, bought their portfolio, they were like maybe five through 10 in terms of top operators in the country. And then when they bought their portfolio for over a billion dollars at a four and a half cap, they became the top operator in the country. And so that is how they, they try to control the marketplace was just acquiring assets. And so right now what we're seeing is a lot of products out there and then there's, the evaluation is not always great, but as we're coming in, we're looking for those secondary markets, which don't have enough supply where we can fill that gap. And so we're, we're coming in under the radar, creating product that other people aren't able to do. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that's how does the uh, how does the reposition on on a deal looks like for you guys on the uh, self storage? Uh, you know, when we go to sell it. Yes, exactly. So, for example, you know, multifamily is, is five to seven years, and then we refinance or sell it uh, for, on the uh, um, on the self storage uh, assets. How how does that work? Well, the modeling is very similar between the two. And keep okay. in mind, like it's. The asset classes think of think multifamily without toilets. It's just it's a lot more simplistic model. So your operational costs are fifty five percent, typically. Mine are typically thirty five percent. So we, we have less expenses. I mean, we don't have to fix things, right? You know, yeah. someone might dent a, a metal wall. Okay, well, take a hammer and knock it back out. So yeah, you know, we're, we're not we're not dealing with major repair items that 
that are in multifamily. So when we look at absorption, right? So if I'm bringing a brand new apartment building online or if I'm bringing a brand new self-storage, the absorption is exactly the same in terms of predictability. It's like 3% per month. So within three years, your whole facility should be operational. So if, if, our, if we're well below seven on the square feet per capita, then we should be able to get higher occupancy faster. So our facility in Chicago, even in COVID, during that six-month period of COVID, since we, op- we had the grand fortune of opening like a week or two right before our governor says we're closing down the state. Well, I read the, the, the proclamation and said, hey, we got to stay open. We're, 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 we've been deemed essential, so there's no reason why we should be closed. And I called our operator. I'm like, keep our doors open. I don't want to see a close sign on that door one day, one minute, open up. And we're now 30% occupied in six months. So we're double the occupancy in the heart of COVID compared to where we were expected to be. So, you know, that if we're looking at that, the repositioning is, is the same in terms of lease up. Now, the other evaluation is just very similar. So you're looking at your NOI and applying a cap rate to it. So the we we compare asset classes. So when we say class A, class B, or class C, we're not talking about bad neighborhoods or bad mm-hmm. products. We're typically describing what features and what locations they are. So class C would be like original first generation self-storage, more out in the country, no climate control. It's just a, you know, you drive into a lot, there's a whole bunch of rows of garage doors, you open it up, you put your stuff in and you drive out. Class B is the same sort of product, maybe newer, you know, second generation, third generation, more suburban, but it's climate controlled. They might have units that have, you know, furnaces or cooling in order to control the units. Mm-hmm. Then class A is what we're doing, which is urban, fully climate controlled where you're driving into the building. So when we're looking at those caps, the cap rates can vary between five to nine or 10 within those different assets classes, which is extremely similar to, you know, multifamily. I mean, right now, I think, you know, multifamily is an all-time great cap compression around four and a half or five for a, a, a very good class A facility, maybe even a three. Yeah. And when, when I'm looking, I'm like, why would I go into that asset class and try to acquire a, an asset at 3%? I mean, where, where's it going to go for me? It can only go down. Yeah. So when we're building, we're building like at a, at a 12 cap and we're going to be selling at a six cap. We're always looking for that margin, that spread. That's where our valuation comes in. No, you're absolutely right. And cap rates, multifamily are, are compressed right now. It's kind of weird to, to see, but everyone's struggling to find deals. So yeah. that's why I sold mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Smart man. When, when did that happen? When did that aha moment went from multifamily to, okay, let me do now self-storage? I was coaching real estate at the time. And I had a client who came to me and said, I want to find a distressed self-storage. I went to the seminar and they're telling us by distressed self-storage. And this is, you know, after the crash. And I spent a good year looking for a distressed self-storage. I could not find one. You know, so maybe it was, you know, a nine cap and, you know, you could improve their occupancy or the income by $20,000. And, you know, it might go to an eight and a half, but that's not distressed, right? And I'm like, man, this, this asset class is, a, is amazing. You know, we're in the worst market ever. Why is there not distressed self-storage? And so I, could, I couldn't find it. And so I kept telling him, I'm like, you're going to probably have to develop one. And we, we went under contract for a building to convert it into uh, um, owner-occupied use. 
And so we were going to develop and then flip it to this guy who, you know, his business needed a very specific building. And originally the mayor said, you know, gave us the nonverbal approval and then changed her mind like three months later after we'd already gone hard. And I'm like, okay, now what do we do with this 90,000 square foot warehouse? And I'm like, Hmm, maybe my client would want this for self-storage converted into self-storage. And I, I didn't know if it was going to be good or not. So I called him up and said, Hey, I got this building. It's 90,000 square feet. It's got open columns, open plan. It's rectangular. I don't know if it's good for self-storage. Why don't you come out and take a look at it? And if it is great, if not, no harm, no foul, right? It, it could be the opportunity. And they came out with his team, his financial advisors, his, you know, self-storage evaluators. And they said, this building's perfect for it. It will make it. And they said, well, we don't have anyone to build it. I'll do that. And, that, and that's how I got into, we, we entitled it, we designed it, we built it. So we did every single type of transaction. We, we wholesaled it. We kept a portion of it. So we rented it. We did design build. We did the entitlements and then we flipped it. So, I mean, it was literally, we had multiple ways in which we facilitated that project. Awesome. Man, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Literally every little part of it, you you were in it. You know, there wasn't a part of that transaction you did not touch. That is yeah. awesome. So why are you focusing in the Midwest and not any other market like the coastal markets? Because the saturation is too high. It's as simple as that. Okay. You know, we get people call us up and go, oh, I got the perfect location for a self-storage facility in Florida. I'm like, where are you? I'm in Florida. Okay. What's, your, what's the address? And, and I type in an address and I said, self-storage near me. And there's like 20 facilities within three miles. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that. Now that you think about it. Yeah, there are a lot of self-storage facilities around here. You know, it's just the type of thing when you're going to buy a blue car, you start seeing that blue car, right? And um, a lot of people don't have an eye for self-storage until they need it. And then it's, mm -hmm. you know, it appears everywhere. That's true. Cool. Well, Scott, thank you so much, man. This has been very eye-opening with self-storage for me. So I'm yeah. going to do some more research on it. I really appreciate all the information you, you've given us. So, you know, I, in your bio, it also says, what are four proven uh, passive investments? If you can throw out those nuggets for us. Well, first of all, what I like to say is I, I've had a blast with, with both of you guys. And, you know, Thank for you. any of your listeners, if, if they mentioned this podcast, if they go to our website, info at codamanagement.com and type, type that in, there's a, there's a section for us where you can request information. If they, if they put in your information, because um, we, we want to give back to your community. If someone wants to learn more about it or has a property they think is good, I mean, we're not in the business of stealing deals. It, it's too small of an industry. That's not our business model. But we'll, we'll take an hour and spend with your with your clients if they if they mention this podcast, so that that way you guys know that you guys get credit for it. Awesome. Um, we will discuss with them. Uh, you know, if they think they have a site, if they think they have a building that could be converted into it, we'll be more than happy to spend an hour going through the through what we look for. So that, that is one thing that we, we put out there for you. So ways in which we, we look at how to increase, we're, we're, what we're always doing is we're looking to increase the rate of return for our passive investors, okay? And, and my passive investors began with my first project where we bought a house, tore it down, built a new one and flipped it, okay? 
And so we're, we're always looking at how we can increase the capital stack, increase the performance of that capital stack for our investors. And those three investors happen to be my, my grandfather, my uncle, and my father. And after I gave them a 90% rate of return on their investment, they said, do it again and don't tell anybody. <laughs> Keep, Keep it in your house. Yeah. Yeah. I got to start telling everybody. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, so what we're doing is like, for instance, oppor um, opportunity zones. You know, that is one way in which you have capital gains. And it's a way of sheltering capital gains to increase your tax. You know, you know if you're not giving away 30% to the government, yeah. You're keeping three. So you're, it's already increased of 30% on your rate of return. That is one way in which we look to do it. The other one is pace financing. That's another way in which we can reduce the amount of capital to increase the rate of return within our capital stack. Um, the other one is we've done historic tax credits. So our building up I mean, in Wisconsin and Milwaukee, we've gotten $1.5 million of historic tax credits that we're returning back to our investors in the form of tax shelters or air actual cash. We're returning that back to our investors. Um, selling cell towers. That, that is in the, when we've had cell towers on our property, we have sold those. So I bought some at 17 cap and the cell tower, we were renegotiating the lease and the, the cell tower company said, would, would you be considered interested in, in selling these by any chance? Sure. What would you have in mind? I said, give us a number. I did it a three cap. I'm like, what are cell towers going to be like in 20 years? You know, they wanted a 30 year lease. I'm like, I called up my buddy in, in cell phones. I said, do you think our cell phones are going to be terrestrial based or are they all going to be satellite based in 30 years? He goes, I give it 10 years. So I'm like, sell the cell towers. Sell it, yeah. And um, I sold it at a three cap. So, I mean, that's, that's a 14 cap differential. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we returned our, our equity back to our investors. So these are ways in which we look to how to increase the project once we've already bought the project. You know, we don't model those things into it, but those are ways. And when I talked about the, the art of the deal or the creativity and structuring the deal, those are the things I'm looking for and how we do that. So we're, it's just not self-storage. It's how do, we, how do we increase our performance of our project all the way through. That's, that's awesome. That's really yeah. great. So last question, um, you know, how do you, we always ask, you know, obviously you, you're a full-time professional, uh, you seem like a, a type A plus, right? How do you balance family and work? I did see that you have a family. How do you balance that? How do you, how you, how do you live a full, uh, full life? Well, I, and that's a, that's a always a evolving question, right? So, I mean, there was when the kids were younger, then there was when they started going off to college and there was COVID, which changed everything, right? They all came back. Um, but being an entrepreneur, being self-employed, I was able to set my own hours. And for a good portion of my time, I worked out of the house. Now, there was, there was pros and cons to that. The cons are the kids knew what was going on in my business. I couldn't, I couldn't isolate it. I couldn't separate it. But the, the pros were I could structure it. So, you know, my, I was fortunate enough that my kids accelerated at, at, at different things in their lives. And so we could take time to go do those things with them. So, we, you know, we always made sure that they had the opportunity to perform what they, to master a craft. That was always important for us to, for them to learn how to do that so that they could experience both success and failure. I think you learn more through failure than you do through success. And so, but we wanted them to be able to taste success, but also to experience failure so they would know how to overcome it. But throughout all of that, the, the, the biggest important thing was faith. 
you know, faith drove our family. It's how I met my wife. Um, you know, she's a very proper Southern Baptist, you know, lady, and she picked me up in the narthex of a church. It was very forward of her. And so she's like, I didn't do that. I'm like, you approached me. I didn't approach you. <laughs> um, but that's how we met. I mean, and that's, that's the cornerstone. That's the rock of our, of our family. And so we've always done that. And, and COVID was a, it was a bittersweet time. You know, my, my son was playing junior hockey at the time and his season was interrupted due to injury. And, um, he came home to have the surgery and then he was never, never able to, to go back. Um, and my daughter came home and she became an EMT and was actually, um, came home from college and, and was an EMT and, and transporting COVID patients around, um, part of her job. And then we obviously still have our high school student, but every night during the heart of COVID, we, we came up with a plan that everyone each had to take a day and had to come up with a family activity for us to do so that we didn't get in this monotonous routine and, you know, boredom and, and that, and like building time for family, but also you, we had our own space. We were blessed with a big enough home that we had our own spaces for work. But then when we would come together, we just didn't want to be around a meal and then gone in 10 minutes. So we did different things. You know, we each came up with ideas and some were fun and some were not so fun, but we we agreed that no matter what it was, we weren't going to complain. We were just going to embrace it, do it and enjoy it and enjoy our time together. And, you know, that was one of the, the fun things that I enjoy. And this summer, the only thing that stayed open in Chicago, well, in the city that the, the mayor said, we're shutting the beaches down, get your beep off the beaches, your jump sucks. It's still going to suck. So get your e off the courts, go home. Our, president of our village said, our beaches are open. <laughs> That's what happened. We had 6 million people flocking to our beach. But, um, you know, we we're, we're, again, we're blessed that we had um, some things down at the beach where we, you know, we have a, a place that is semi-private that we could keep our stuff there, our, our boat and, and different toys. And we just spent an enormous amount of time as a family together on the beach and we saw it as a way in which to to not only be with our family, but have an outlet for the other kids to come and experience, relax, get away, and just enjoy. And we, and we were very blessed with the great weather here in Chicago all summer. I mean, it was just absolutely gorgeous. It was like a perfect nice. summer. So those are some of the ways in which we we try to keep family life in, in checks. That, oh, and I love great. it. It's, yeah, yeah we, we talk about it all the time. It's, it's the control that you get. Um, when you when you become an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur, you know you you're able to um, to allocate that time with your family, and you the, the fact that you made a, a bad situation uh, into a good one, you know, with the family and all that. As a matter of fact, I think those are good ideas. Come up with something every day and don't complain. Just let's do it and and, and uh, uh, love the experience. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's always important. We we try to talk about that with our viewers because you know we. We talk to a lot of people who are very successful and some of them, you know, they flat out say during our podcast, you know, they, they lost their family along the way. And it's, it's important that if that is the core of your family to remember why you're doing what you're doing, right? Absolutely. And maintaining that balance. And it's always good to hear from people like yourself who, who have done it and you, you have your family and you have your core there functioning. So that's, that's awesome. And, and congrats on that. Thank you. You know, and you already mentioned, uh, you know, kind of where you, you, where people can reach you. But if you could always at the end, we'd like to give you the opportunity. Where can people reach you? 
uh, your website, any social media, is anything else that you want to mention? Well, our, our, our website is Coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. And um, our, our design build site is Coda, D-B for design build. It's very creative.com. But um, if you go to info at codamg.com, we'll, we'll get that email. But if you also go to our webpage under contact us, there's a way in which you can put in the information, reference this podcast, and then, you know, it, it will get to us as well. We're also on Facebook for Coda Management Group. And, um, you know, I, I think those are the, the main, there's plenty of ways in which to get hold of us. So, okay, nice. perfect. Perfect. Well, Scott, thank you so much again for coming on. Truly, this was a, we, we dove into a lot and I really appreciate how much you gave, gave to us and the audience. So, My so pleasure. Much. Glad to be able to uh, be on it and uh, thank you for inviting me. Awesome, Scott.